You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you guys always for being part of the show and listening. Make sure you guys go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Only takes a few seconds. More subscribers and reviews that we get, the more visibility the show gets. That helps us grow and helps us continue to bring you guys great guests, incredible stories from all over the globe. Again, these reviews, they don't got to be lengthy. They can be as short as you want. Just give us a rating. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, that feedback. We really take it into consideration uh, when we look at getting guests. And, you know, the Hazard Ground Podcast is this, it's community and it's growing. Uh, we want to get as many listeners and supporters out there. You guys are a tremendous part of it. And we want you to be involved in on everything that we're doing. And eventually that's where we want to go with the podcast is take it to a, a in-studio place where we can get rid of call-in format. And you guys can be part of the show and interact with the guests themselves. So uh, we can't do that without your support. So again, please subscribe, rate, and review Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we're on all of them. And all of this goes towards making the show better for you, for our guests, and everyone involved. This week's guest is a former United States Marine Corps infantry major. He's got over 20 years of service, both in the enlisted and the officer side. He's had 10 deployments. He's been to over 60 countries in the world. And most recently, he is an author releasing a book called Echo in Ramadi about his time with the Marines in Ramadi, Iraq, back in 2006 into 2007. And he is Scott Husing on the Hazard Ground podcast. Scott, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. You know, it's interesting. You actually know a whole bunch of our former guests here on the podcast. I do. I I always tell people it's a... uh, Two degrees of separation in the Marine Corps. It's a small world, but uh, definitely a smaller Marine Corps for sure. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of the guests you've had on, I've either served with or I know them through this incredible network of veterans and and people like you that you know love to love to support veterans through you know programs like Hazard Ground. It's it's really amazing. Well, we know their story and how they they got started in the Marines. Tell us yours. How did you end up there? How I started in the Marines. Well, uh, it's not. A romantic tale by any stretch of the means. I was uh, a not so stellar high school student. I uh, didn't have a lot of guidance or discipline growing up, and uh, managed to squeak out out of high school barely. And I had led this lifestyle of relatively risky behavior, even as a young kid, taking stunts and you know riding BMX bikes and playing BB gun wars. And then my friend introduced me to these recruiters these marine recruiters and i thought to myself man these guys are some serious risk takers and it seemed like a natural fit for me so i enlisted just out of high school and served uh, just over four years participated in operation desert shield desert storm and then uh, decided the error of my ways as a young uh, wayward youth and went to college at illinois state I, I don't throw that around to sound like some elitist mark you know they only accept a select 50 or 60,000 every year. So <laughs> I, I got into college. Uh, I did graduate in three years and then was lucky enough to find another young Marine who offered me a seat as an uh, officer candidate and got my commission shortly thereafter. And then 24 years later, uh, the rest is history. I uh, have been very fortunate to be in the infantry and be surrounded for you know 20 almost 24 years and traveled to 60 different country and 10 deployments later um decided uh i'd I'd done my fair share and then started out on my own 
And it's interesting. We don't have a lot of Gulf War, like, you know, 1990 Gulf War vets on the podcast because they're hard to find. And, you know, the war was so short and most of the people who did it, uh, you know, there, there's not a lot of, I guess, folklore stories about that war. And, and just I'm curious to know what your experience was there and what you did. Well, it's it's funny you say that because even as as a as a writer and uh, how impactful and important social media is, I'm, I belong to all these groups, and I just joined this one Veterans of the Gulf War group. Even on social media, where there's thousands of groups to join, uh, there really you're right, there really aren't a whole lot of them. And I'll be honest with you, uh, even in my book that's coming out in February, Echo and Ramadi. I, I wrote a passage in there to, to the effect that, you know, we fought and uh, we did our we, we did our duty when we were in uh, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But in comparison to the other multiple combat tours I had and, and other other deployments, it, it really was a very, for some reason, forgettable experience for me because it was so short lived. It wasn't like the the other battles that I fought in the other deployments in combat in Baghdad and Ramadi and, and, and other places because of the, the dynamic nature of those deployments in contrast. And, and honestly, maybe it was because I was such a young kid at the time. I was, you know, just a 19 year old Lance Corporal, but still very proud of, you know, my service during that war. And I still stay very connected to a lot of the Marines I served with back then. But I don't think you're, there are a lot of a lot of stories uh, like we've seen out of the past wars uh, or the long war that we're in right now. Yeah. You know, we've reached out to a couple here on the podcast. Uh, we tried to get uh, Anthony Swafford, who is the guy um, who wrote, wrote the book Jarhead. Yeah. And, and we, we haven't had much success there. I mean, that's one of the more notable, you know, tales, but there's just not, you know, and I don't know if it was, it was so short lived, but there's just not a lot of people out there who have, a lot to say other than, you know, retired general Norman Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell and all those other guys. So it's, uh, and they are a little bit unattainable at this point in time, but uh, beyond that, just, it's an interesting yeah. little anecdote about, about the and, Gulf you know, that, War. That book was, that, that book was from my perspective, not a bad book. And the movie got a lot of bad press. The, obviously the Marine Corps didn't endorse it, but I got to tell you, uh, I, I think it was pretty accurate. Some of the antics and the, the the normalcy and acceptability of that that type of behavior back then in the in the late 80s early 90s i think that was commonplace i don't think they were far off the it may have been a little stretched but then again you know people ask me is like well you know what what are some good hollywood movies about war you know what are some good ones and the intent of hollywood to capture what we experience under those circumstances in 90 minutes is is they're not going to, or I don't think they intend to tell the whole truth. I mean, otherwise it would be extremely boring. No one would sit through 90 minutes of the, you know, periods of extreme boredom that, you know, punctuate those intense moments of highly kinetic friction and, and fighting or the, the, you know, random acts of grab ass and jocularity that you know, Marines <laughs> are known for. It's just, nobody wants to sit in a movie theater and pay 15 bucks for that. So uh, but there have been some great movies that have been based off of books that have come out. We Were Soldiers is a great example, I think, of the Vietnam era and some other great ones like Tom Tom Hanks in the Pacific for World War II. Yeah. That was an HBO. So they're out there. You just got to 
see what fits you know your taste best i suppose and for those wondering about jarhead when uh jamie fox played the role of that staff sergeant he did it to a t that, that that's pretty accurate i, th- I would say i i agree yeah yeah i, I think so. I, I think he's a good artist all right well uh moving on from the gulf war uh, let me ask you because we have had people who have been both officer and enlisted uh, on this when you look back at your career in totality uh, which one was better for you? Which one did you enjoy more? Which one kind of gave you a little bit more of a challenge? Give me, give me both sides. Well, I get asked that question a lot, Mark. And they so, sometimes people ask me, you know, does being enlisted make, make me a better officer? Did it make me a better officer? And the answer is always no. It, it gave me a different perspective on what the young Marines uh, go through. And I think as an officer, it really made me value their time more and understand that I never wanted to waste an opportunity uh, to train the young men and women that were you know, under my command as an officer. And that was vitally important to me because I always knew what possibly lay on the horizon. And we trained as if each day was our last. And, and I was fully aware of that. And, and probably based off of, again, years of experience and Wisdom play a lot, 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 a uh, lot in that decision making process. But uh, I was really fortunate in my career in, in almost, you know, in 24 years. I was either a Marine or leading Marines the entire time. I was very fortunate in the fact that I was assigned to operational units. So that was something that a lot of people don't enjoy because the Marine Corps and most branches of the military, they do have roles where enlisted and officers have to serve and some of the not so glamorous staff jobs that um i was lucky enough to uh kind of i don't want you want to use the word bypass i was just selected to lead and be a part of other units that were always operational so that's why sometimes people are telling me say man 10 deployments how'd you, how'd you manage that i tell you it's nothing magical i just got on the bus man and uh, <laughs> that's uh, orders or orders and uh, i was lucky either um through selection or just uh, timing i think has a lot to play with everything well let's get to some of those deployments first where were you on 9-11 and kind of what do you remember and uh how, how did those events unfold for you as a marine i was actually on a unit deployment program to okinawa on 9-11 so we were young lieutenants and we're watching the news it was late and we saw the the first plane at the tower and i was actually on the phone with my girlfriend now wife and we were discussing it and she couldn't believe it and i i saw the other plane hit and instinctually i said it's a terrorist attack we rallied all the lieutenants and i remember we sat in a room in the barracks in okinawa and just watched the events unfold and the alarm sounded and we went through basic procedures and you know, security measures and things like that, even though we were in Japan. But after that, that significant event that, uh, you know, the, the that lit the fuse, that, that catalyst that started this long war on terror for, for all military service members in America, we, uh, we began training and uh, we have a great mechanism in place in the military that's, that's prepared our young men and women um, to accomplish the missions they've been tasked with. And I, I never cease to amaze at, at how well they perform under, under some of the conditions they're put in. And, you know, I, 
that's one of the things too that I look back on Mark in, in retrospect is in Ramadi you know, when we fought in 2006 and 2007 I I often tasked these these young men that were under my charge with these unbelievable uh, missions and I, I never saw a 22 year old kid you know all I saw was the sergeant or the young corporal and it wasn't until I finished writing my book that I understood wow these were only 20 21 22 year old kids and yet they never failed to exceed my expectations on the battlefield in an environment that was so extremely kinetic in a, in a world that was so uncertain but filled with so much certain danger they were absolutely heroes every day uh, because it wasn't a matter of if we were going to get shot at it was when and how often and that was just again part of the timing in Ramadi in 06 and 07 it was the dangerous and deadliest city in Iraq at the time. I think it's interesting that you bring that up because we do talk about it a bunch with various people here on the podcast and you know for the civilians listening it's a different world when you lead men and women into combat and you're there as opposed to when you send men and women into combat and you're not there. Uh, and that is that is a, a difficult thing to handle sometimes because, you know, in our line of work, it's always about control, right? If we're there, we feel like we can have some semblance of control. We've been trained. We know what to do. We, we always feel like we're going to win the fight. And, and there's no doubt in that. In the positions where I have been, where I have asked people below me to do things and, and, and not go where they're going or not be where they are and put them in harm's way, there's always that sinking feeling in the back of my mind that always, what if something goes wrong? You know, and, mm -hmm. and, and that is, I think we're more prepared to deal with what goes wrong if we're there as opposed to if we're not there, at least in my mind. No, I think that, I think that's spot on. And it's, people ask that question sometimes to me as well. Um, why do young men and women do the things that they do? And the only practical analogy I normally give people is imagine you're in the NFL and you practice all week and there's never a game on Sunday. Well, for the Marines and soldiers and the, our military service members, they train and train for months and months on end. And, and like my Marines that I led in in combat once they get there it's game day every single day and that's what they train for and that's what they do and they make a they make that sacrifice knowingly and they do it willingly uh, when they enlist or when they become officers and what's also amazing is they make up such a small percentage of the american population mark less than one half of the entire American population of over 330 million people. These are the best our nation has. And as I went through and I was, I finished, you know, Echo and Ramadi, um, another thing struck me as well is that what makes our military so great and this this amazing demographic of, of citizens that we, we have within the military is they're not just, they're not just expert shooters. And it's not the fact that the Marines kill the enemy with unbridled ferocity and they are the straightest shooters but it's the fact that they're artisans and they're mechanics and electricians and you know, singers and sometimes writers uh, that make our military so great and 
as a leader, if you can really tap into that capacity and understand the diversity that you have at your disposal, that's what really makes uh, a great unit. And and my company, Echo Company, Second Battalion, Fourth Marines, was not this elite unit of you know specially trained warriors. We had a lot of great training. Don't get me wrong, but it was inescapably. A, a company of of men that had this indescribable chemistry and that chemistry carried us through this chasm of war and and we came out and and, and we survived and we still stay remarkably connected to this day probably due to some of the things that we saw and some of the things that we can't unsee uh, on the battlefield but it's it's really hard for the civilian component to understand that but i think we've gotten better too i think we have such an appreciation from the general um population now that respects veterans you can't count the number of nonprofit organizations that are willing to help veterans that are struggling with post-traumatic stress or that have you know are wounded warriors that come back home it, it never ceases to amaze me how generous they are and there's so many of them out there you can't even begin to list them Scott, you mentioned Echo and Ramadi a couple times. I want to get there, but tell me about your first deployment to Iraq, because that wasn't your first trip there, obviously. No, no, it wasn't. Um, I mean, obviously, we, uh, you know, Desert Storm came and went. I went to college, uh, got my commission, and then uh, we went back. Um, I was part of a task force in, in Baghdad shortly after the initial invasion, and uh, I spent 10 months over there. Um, and for some reason, I always have this this curse with me. Any deployment that's scheduled for six or seven months that I get put on, it always seems to get extended. And I always told my Marines before we got on the, the plane or the boat or the bus, I'm like, prepare, because we're going to get extended. I just have this this knack of being extended for whatever reason it is. And uh, But it wasn't my first time. And then we, we went back um, in uh, 2004. Uh, and during that deployment, I actually uh, had left my wife in the driveway of our Virginia home. She was eight months pregnant. Oh, God. And I said, good luck with that. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I took off and uh, I was gone for 10 months. And the first time I actually saw my daughter was uh, on Fox News. So my wife had the baby, happy, healthy. And one of my Marines had talked to a reporter that was floating around our area of operation and said their boss had a kid and Fox News got a hold of it. So we jocked up a convoy, went through the badlands of Baghdad to the Ishtar Sheridan. And I did an interview on Fox and Friends with Edie Hills and uh, Ryan Kilmeade. And my, they trucked my wife up to D.C. and put her in a studio and zoomed in on my beautiful little redheaded daughter. And that was actually the first time I saw her. And then about four months later, after a second extension on that deployment i finally got to see her and she was a cute little five-month-old butterball but uh shortly thereafter uh, went to school and then the, the the call came again uh and i was to report into second battalion fourth marines early to staff all the rifle companies because they needed commanders and uh i lived in my office because it was futile trying to get an apartment and the Marines, I'm sure, cringed when they found out their boss was living in the battalion command post. And it uh, it was a fast training cycle. But shortly thereafter, we boarded the USS Boxer and we set sail to the Middle East. 
All right. So when you get to this deployment, that this is obviously 2006 into 2007, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Ramadi, Fallujah, that area of Iraq, which is about 30, 45 minutes directly west of Baghdad, was for the longest time one of the most hottest, most dangerous places to be uh, in all of Iraq, and. Um, a lot of bad things happened there. Um, you know, there there was an attack on um, twenty Marines, and they hung them from a bridge in, in Ramadi. Uh, I think people may remember those headlines, and just all sorts of bad dudes out there doing bad things to good people. And so, when you guys get there on that deployment, what was your mission? What were you told? Uh, and, and kind of, you know, what was the environment like when you first hit ground? Well, we found out we were going on the the morning of the Marine Corps birthday, the 231st birthday of the Marine Corps on ship. And then we flew into country myself and another commander and started setting the conditions for arrival. And when the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit went in, we were split apart and farmed out for lack of a better term to different units uh, on the, on the battlefield in El Ambar province where all the fighting was going on and uh, never to diminish the, the battles uh, that the Marines and soldiers fought in, in cities like Fallujah or Najaf or, or others before we got there. That's just how it went. There were the pockets of a resistance. Once we'd hammer them down like whack-a-mole, that game at, at, you know, at a fun park where you smash them down and then they pop up somewhere else. That's how the insurgency worked uh, in that type of asymmetric warfare. And at the time, Ramadi was, was the hot spot. And I think it's kind of an important reason why, um, why I wrote, wrote the book too, because the second battle of Ramadi, the first battle was in 2004 and then it popped back up again in 2006 and it was really boiling over. That's where the most significant resistance was from the insurgency. And so two of the companies, Echo Company, my company and Fox Company were deployed to Ramadi to work for the first brigade combat team, the ready first under then Colonel Sean McFarland and I worked directly at first for Task Force 19 Infantry under the Army at the uh, hands of a very skilled leader named Lieutenant Colonel Chuck Ferry. And when we rolled in with about 250 Marines in my company, we looked like rock stars by our sheer numbers alone because the Army was only able to field from 80 to 100 soldiers in their rifle companies. And that was due to the size of the army at the time. And it also had a lot to do with the fact that they'd suffered a very high casualty rate. So when we landed, it was extremely heavy fighting. And, you know, to describe it to people is, is often challenging. Uh, I think I tried my best from my perspective through the lens I saw through that war, but um, you know, combat is, is not a natural event it's it's created by humans and it's often by those who never ever have to experience the savagery that it uh, encompasses or that it leaves in, in in its absence both in the in the minds and, and souls of the, of the marines and soldiers that fight it i mean they kind of sit blindly and pronounce others fate and they they'll never really understand that unrelenting tide that, that swells and crashes for those who fight for everyone's freedom so when we landed um, that's what we experienced. It was as, as bad as it gets in one's imagination. And the story of Echo Company and Ramadi 
in the winter of 06 and the spring of 07 was really one of collective discipline. And it, it ultimately turned out to be a series of life-saving vigilance and patience and love and resolve that was demonstrated daily by uh, my young men that possessed the strongest sense of personal character. I mean, they really went through everything imaginable that you could think of on the battlefield in, uh, in, in the worst conditions created by humanity. You know, and, and 2007 was when the surge started. I mean, you know, if people needed a timeline here for those who haven't deployed to Iraq who are listening, you know, obviously we had the invasion in 03 and then there was like a calm into 04 because no one knew what was next, right? So at the end of 03, mm-hmm. beginning of 04, there was a calm and that's when the insurgency started to pick up. Like that's when initially the birth stages of it were 04 into, into you know, late 04 into the beginning of 05 and then 05 and 06 were really the height of the violence there. And that's when the United States government said, well, we need more boots on ground. We need more dudes there to kind of, you know, put this violence to rest. But in your book, you know, you talk a little bit about how that that surge actually made life worse for you. Yeah, this this, we were part of uh, President uh, George Bush's surge strategy, uh, which was actually General David Petraeus's concept to flood the battle space with additional troops. And with the 15th Mew, we had 2,500 specially trained Marines and soldiers, and we were part of that component to go in and really flood the battle space. And that's why they didn't use us in a conventional method when they piecemealed us out so we could fill those gaps in, the, in, in those, those seams where the resistance was the heaviest fighting. And uh, it, it, it was, again just at the point where it was boiling over in Ramadi where they needed additional firepower. And that's what the Marines brought to the fight from the 15th Mew and in our battalion. There were other battalions in the city as well fighting that we uh, were adjacent to. It was, uh, it was unbelievable that the, the, the density of the space we were fighting in and the number of people that fell under the brigade combat team that were being employed. And I was extremely fortunate, Mark, that about 50% of my Marines in Echo Company had been in the first Battle of Ramadi in 2004, and they fought. And almost each and every one of them, although they suffered a casualty count that sadly uh, rivaled any uh, known to Marines in in modern warfare during the 2004 deployment, uh, they lost um, so many Marines. When we were in the city in 06, they were astounded at the level of fighting and the number of fighters that we went up against each and every day. It was just a different environment for them. But I was very fortunate to have some very seasoned non-commissioned officers and even some of the junior Marines who'd only had um, less, less than a shade of two years in the Marine Corps. And they were already on their second deployment fighting in some of the worst conditions. Give me an example of that cohesion, that camaraderie, that teamwork that you just talked about. Well, I think we we trained so hard uh, as Marines, and I kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. But whether an officer or whether enlisted, um, what's important for listeners who've never served in the military is understand that the training is so intense, and the Marines are never as hot or as cold or as tired or as hungry or as fatigued in combat as they are in training. And that's how it's supposed to be. And again, under my command, 
uh, or in training, I, I made them prepare as if each day were their last. And our mission in Iraq was to kill or capture anti-Iraqi forces. And that's what we did. And through that shared adversity on the battlefield, that brotherhood, it's, it's, it's a feeling that only solidifies the, the, the bonds of brotherhood unlike anything I've ever experienced um, because they literally, you know, stood in the line of fire daily. It was the most densely populated of insurgent activity at the time and the heroics that they performed, um, you know, which I tried to describe in vivid detail and some of the horrific aspects of combat um, while exposing the, the spirit and, and the heart and soul of the Marines that really risked everything. I mean, they fought and died helping so many people that couldn't help themselves. And that is really the true spirit of what Marines do. And it connects us in a way that's probably only known to those that have served. So Scott, how do you guys deal with the loss of a fellow Marine, you know, or platoon mate when it happens in combat? Well, there's no easy answer for that. Obviously it's uh, tough for everybody involved, but combat's a very real thing. And the, the severity of it and all the events around you and the, that, that reality really have a tendency to escape your attention if you're not in the moment. And by in the moment, I mean being shot at or mortared or whatever else, if there's an ID explosion that, you know, the repetitiveness and the boredom um, and the chaos and, of it all just really don't seem to exist, but it does. And it, it obviously doesn't seem real until you have to look at the appearance of a 19-year-old Marine in the eye and express the sympathies for the death of their son, who is ultimately your responsibility. Um, you know, there's no class that they can teach us before we deploy as officers uh, or as Marines to really prepare us for when that event occurs on the battlefield. There's just no way to replicate that type of, of emotion as best we try. I think maybe as a young officer, they make you write a fictional letter or something to a, a fictional parent. But I got a newsflash. There's, there's no way you can train for it. It's just indescribable of the, the amount of emotion that overwhelms you. But at the same time, the training that the Marines get and that, that the, the soldiers get to continue on with the mission and support each other, even after the immediate loss of a Marine, they know that the mission still takes priority and they have to fight for each other. And at the end of the day, that's what they do. And even though they've lost someone who is fighting right next to them minutes earlier, they carry on with the mission because they know that's what that Marine would want them to do. They'd want them to fight and they'd want them to win. And when you kind of go through that, you know, there are times where it can galvanize a unit or in certain cases it can almost tear it down. But, you know, as a leader, how important it is, is it for you to kind of tap into that and make sure it's a galvanizing effect as opposed to something that can break you guys apart? That's a great word, galvanize. Um, I think it depends on the leadership style of any commander on the battlefield, uh, my, my concept was always a team concept for the Marines. And I was always right there with them whenever we fought or whenever there was patrol, I was always you know on it. And I always felt that was where my place was to 
to be part of the team. And to get their heads back in the fight, I think just having a strong leadership presence at every level, not just as a at the senior level, but those platoon commanders and the squad leaders and the platoon sergeants that were the real backbone of of what the what the junior guys looked up to. My experience in Ramadi in, in 2006, that was something I was, I was always amazed by is that the lieutenants that I had were just a shade over 24 years old in most cases, but they were very fortunate to have some of the most seasoned and experienced non-commissioned officers fighting right alongside them. So I think the, the sturdiness of you know the leadership they had and the brotherhood that was developed through the training and through the deployment was what galvanized them. And I think it fortified their, their steel to keep fighting when we lost guys or guys were injured on the battlefield and they had to go back to the rear. When you get done, done with a deployment where you lose guys and you, you have time to actually sit back and reflect, because I, I don't know if there's a lot of reflection that goes on while you're in there, you know, while you're in the moment and, and, and missions still go on. But when you get back and you reflect on it, uh, you know, what are the takeaways that you have, not only as a leader, but, but your men? What, what, what were the takeaways that they have? Well, we do take a, a pause sometimes, even in combat, to memorialize the Marines we've lost. And it's a significant emotional event, not physically, but logistically. I say that euphemistically to, to get the squad mates or the platoon mates back to a, a safe area where we can do some sort of battlefield memorial so they can add some quick closure to the loss of their fellow Marine, usually within 72 hours. But it's not like we can take a time out with the enemy and say, hey, we're going to stop fighting while we mourn the loss of our dead. So we have to be careful. We, we rotate guys in and off the front lines. But when we get back off the deployment, we also have a very formal ceremony that takes place where we also invite the parents of Marines that we lost and the families and friends. And it, it's a very special occasion. Um, and it's a very, very emotional occasion as well uh, that we experienced in, in the, the summer of 2007 when we got back from that deployment. And, you know, the families just never cease to amaze me how supportive they are. We talked, I think, about, you know, the difficulty in making a phone call to the parents of a young Marine, but when you meet them face to face, it takes on a whole different yeah, absolutely. world of its own. Yeah. And they're still there surrounding us and supporting us and reaching out to us, even though they look at us and, and they know it's very difficult for the Marines on that day to memorialize and, and say goodbye to the, the, the friends and the Marines that they lost. And, and the Marines at the same time are thinking that we should be strong soldiers for the parents because they're the ones who really lost. And it's just amazing to understand that the type of people, the type of Americans that raise such brave young men and women and yet lose so much and still be there for us. It, even during those solemn occasions, um, we move forward. And I think the lesson learned, Mark, is that staying connected and, and, and staying in touch with this amazing network of our Gold Star families and our the brothers and sisters and the Marines that continue to remember the, the 
great sacrifices that these young men made to paraphrase general Patton um, to some degree. He, ne- he always said, don't mourn the loss of these men. Be fortunate that such great men lived. And I subscribe to that adage and that quote 100%. And I think the families do too, because they take great pride in the fact that the Marines still reach out to them and call them and, you know, keep the, their memory alive through that connection. It's just remarkable. You know, one of the things that, that strikes a chord with a lot of the guests here on the hazard ground is the concept of survivor's guilt. And, you know, as you said, I think you can compartmentalize when you're in a war zone, when you lose a brother, and it's easy for you to lean on one another, and you all understand it, and you're all in that mindset. But once you meet the parents, or once you meet the wife, or the loved one, or whoever it may be, of that fallen Marine, fallen soldier, whoever it is, I, I, to me, I would think that's when I would feel the guilt because now I can see the, the guy next to me understands the same loss I do, but it's different than the loss of the loved one, than the mother or the father or, or the, or the spouse. And, and that I think I would assume is where it really hits home for a lot of guys that, wow, I mean, you know, I'm still here and why am I still here and all the other stuff? Did you encounter any of that? Not you personally, well, if it was you personally or any of the guys in your unit? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's a great distinction that you make too, is that, that cost, uh, the parents that lose vice. What we do as military service members, Mark, is we decided to take an oath. We decided to defend it and be buried under it in some cases. But it's a choice that those brave warriors make and that we make willingly. And the families don't make that choice. They are just dragged into it by the commitment of those young Marines that decide to make that choice. And again, it's such a small number of those who serve in our military. But the after effect in that survivor's guilt, it, it does linger with a lot of the guys. And the case in point in, in writing the book Echo and Ramadi, I think it was the right time to tell the story because it'd been almost a decade when I started writing it. And I don't think that the Marines and the, and the soldiers would have gone through that, that healing process in, in order to share with what they, they were able to share with me during the, the almost 75 interviews I did with my Marines and the families. It was just something that needed to uh, evolve over, for almost a decade where we're willing to talk about it. And yes, the survivor's guilt is there in a lot of cases. And sadly, there have been more than our share of Marines that we've lost to suicide to the effects of post-traumatic stress. And I think obviously that survivor's guilt attributes a large um, factor in, in some of those cases, but so does excess drinking and, and drugs and isolation. They're, they're all contributing factors and we never saw it coming. And we've lost more Marines than we care to to talk about. And sadly, there's no granite memorial with their names etched into it. And their families who lost Marines and soldiers are still grieving. And what's great, again, about the Gold Star Network is they don't discriminate. They don't don't care if your son or daughter was killed in a combat zone or if they took their own life still fighting a war that was in their head they are a very inclusive organization and if you lose a kid you lose a kid and that is really the message that they that they uh, speak loudly within that organization i think it is uh, very telling about the the uh, commitment that they have to 
to really serve who they represent as Gold Star families, of those who have sons or daughters that serve in the military and really want to help them heal. And it's it, it takes on a life of its own sometimes. And it really is a, a strange kind of uh, mental juxtaposition, if you will, because war philosophers will always say that getting a man to go into battle once is easy. It's getting him to return a second time that is difficult because once you see the evil and, and what war is capable of and, and everything that it entails, asking you to go back is even tougher. But there is a certain component of guys who just after going the first time and experiencing that loss, they feel actually more comfortable in that environment because, again, compartmentalization becomes so easy for them. You know, they don't have to have any, you don't have to have any emotions in combat. You just have to live. You just have to go day to day and do what your job is. And there's no thinking and there's no emotions involved and, and all the other stuff. But when you return back to real life, all those things come rushing back and it, 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 it's extremely overwhelming at times. No, absolutely. And if I've heard that word compartmentalize once, I've heard it a thousand times when I do interviews with, with people for um, anything I'm, I'm, I'm putting together. And that's a, a, a useful tool, especially on the battlefield, is they have to compartmentalize that. And those those pieces of loss or those you know, pieces of sadness or difficulty that they do compartmentalize, some of those guys never unpack that. And they're still on active duty and they continue. And I think it, it just really boils down to the individual soldier on, on when they feel comfortable unpacking those those items and those moments in life that they feel they really need to sort through. So um, I don't have a PhD hanging on my wall, Mark, but we know plenty of guys that do. And when we encounter guys that are struggling or we see signs that they're struggling, we, it, we at least we have resources to, to send them to where they can talk about their issues and really manage that, that unpacking of, of what they've stowed away for so long. So it's, it, it's, and I think that's an important part part of the process. And I, and I think the veterans that are listening to this program need to know that it is all right to hurt. It's all right to heal as well. And there are resources out there to, to, to move past it and to continue to be successful in whatever you're doing in life after you leave the military. And the hard part is we're so conditioned in the military, you know, not to show weakness or to, to live to a certain standard. And because it's, it's weird for the, you know, the civilians listening who don't understand why the suicide epidemic in the military is what it is. Well, because you look at the guy next to you and this is what you're trained to do. You look at your buddy next to you and he looks fine. Well, if he's fine, I have to be fine because one, I can't let him see weakness. And two, you know, what's wrong with me? If there's nothing wrong with him, we just went through the same thing. And you kind of get in this vicious cycle that no one's willing to say anything. And you don't even know if the guy next to you is dealing with any issues. And, and that's where this, a lot of this stems from. And it's so hard for kids to come forward, especially the younger kids, because they don't have the, the, the life experience to know that, Hey, you know, something's not right. I need to address it. No, it's true. And although they say that the, the stigma that's attached to post-max stress or, or seeking out help while in active duty has diminished that it's still there. And it, it's still there for first responders as well. The, the, the paramilitary guys because of the risk of job security. I think even in the military um, infantry guys, pilots, they're the, they're the last guys that want to admit that they're struggling or that they have um, issues that they want to deal with because don't want to be left out of the fight. They don't want to be um, put on the bench, so to speak. They always want to be deployable because they want to be there for their fellow Marines. And 
that's a choice that they have to make individually, um, despite the increase in, in programs and, and resources that active duty guys have to, to heal with the issues they're dealing with. But the number that you see on social media and mainstream media about, you know, 20 today, that number's not inaccurate, but it's not representative. It's only the number that's reported from active duty service members because there's limited resources that actually capture the number of guys once they leave the military and commit suicide. That's where the numbers continue to grow. And some reports in some think tanks uh, from research I've done, it's almost 30, 40, 50,000 Marines have taken their lives due to the effects of post-traumatic stress. So wow. it's, uh, yeah, it, it's staggering to think of um, that those numbers that aren't reported uh, are, are the ones that we don't see. And that's, it's, it's sad, but we, uh, we try, and there's a lot of great organizations helping vets deal with what they uh, are going through. But again, I, I just say that, you know, it's all right to heal and it's all right to, you know, think that, you know, there's times in life when you struggle, uh, everybody struggles. And that's the advice I give a lot of guys when they ask is whether in daily life or throughout your career, um, you're going to struggle. I mean, I've had my share of struggles. I know you have, uh, it's natural, but a lot of that comes with age and experience as well. And, I think that's one of the lessons I learned not only while I was on active duty in the Marine Corps, but also over time that, as I talked about earlier, you know, that pattern of risky behavior that I was accustomed to, it was extremely dangerous and probably very detrimental to my health, both mentally and physically. But having lived a life in which I thrived in that risky behavior, um, the, the feeling never dissipated and, and it spilled over into my adult life as well. And as a Marine, or a soldier, you also know that that type of behavior is viewed as completely acceptable lifestyle for most. And especially in the Marines, it's almost embraced, uh, both enlisted and officer. So I think for me, the the biggest challenge was throughout that lifestyle risk, that friction and the uncertainty of combat, the fast pace and that chaos, it was really the absence of that friction that I had the most time you know, the, the challenge for me was adjusting to not having that friction in my life because there's no way to recreate or replicate that type of adrenaline or excitement. And for many, that's really the toughest battle. Um, so I tell veterans and, and those that are you surround our veteran community that no one's perfect and they can help them. And there's times when you slip in life because, you know, life's slippery and, those points in your career and your life that you lose traction, the ground underneath it, you slip and you fall. And for me, it was, it wasn't really an easy process to share that in my life in the book I wrote, Echo and Ramadi, but that was a decision I made. And it was done so only in the hopes that others could learn that it is all right not to be perfect and know that you're going to fall at some point. I mean, I've fallen, you've fallen, but the real, measure of success again it's not just a cliche but you got to pick yourself up and carry around with that mission whatever it is in your career in the military or in life and marines especially they're probably the most um guilty of this because you can almost feel it come as you lose ground as, as that as that traction moves out from under you but most bad the marines will will ignore it and they think they're impervious to the effect of gravity because that's how we're trained right nothing can bring us down right but when you lose traction, make no mistake about it, you're going to land hard. And those that ignore it, I think, land harder than others. 
But every time you do, you fall and you adjust. And through life, um, despite my share of struggles and tough decisions I made um, and losing traction and hitting the ground, I think that those moments of humility uh, really, really made me feel more human. I think they allowed me to identify the slipperies in life that were on the road ahead of me. So as guys stay in the Marines or they transition out, I think if, you know, they, they understand that it's all right to be that way, they, they'll be a little more successful. You know, you talk about tough decisions. Uh, for you, it was ending a 24-year military career in the Marine Corps. You, and you mentioned, you know, that void. How did you come to that decision ultimately? And, and, you know, did you struggle with it for a long time? Or was it something you just knew that it was time to go? I just knew. I didn't struggle with it at all. And after a successful career, both enlisted and officer, either being a Marine or leading Marines my entire time, I was just very fortunate. And I always told myself this is that, you know, when it stops being fun, you got to hang up your boots. And um, I think it was an easy decision for me. And it was compounded by the fact that, uh, you know, as a disabled vet too, I had some impact related injuries that, um, and, and, and some things that were going on in my life that I, I felt physically in fairness to, to, the job I was in as an infantry officer, it, it just would have, I wouldn't have been able to be at my peak performance. So it was not a tough decision. Uh, I think I, I went out in an operational unit at the, at the top of my game and that's how I always wanted to do it. I, I, I always felt bad for guys that got sent off from the military after a, a nice three year tour out of a cubicle in Washington, DC or something of that nature. So I was lucky and I have no regrets, Mark. Uh, I, I think I'm very fortunate to fought and trained and led some of the best men and women in the military uh, over my, my career. And so when you look back on it, uh, not only, you know, the good parts, but the bad parts, what stands out to you the most about your career? Huh. That's a that's a tough question. Uh, there's obviously as an infantry guy, your 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 career is punctuated with so many highs and lows. I think the people that's what stands out to me, and the fact that there's men and women of such great character to serve the country, and you get such a diverse um, demographic of people willing to serve. It's the people that make the career great and finding the best in people and making the best out of a bad situation. That, that's really what carried me through um, my time in the military. And I was very fortunate uh, to be surrounded by so many great leaders and, and be able to lead so many great men and women. It was just uh, the high, that was the highlight for me was the people. Well, the book, again, is called Echo and Ramadi. comes out February 20th, 2018. Uh, you can get it at bookstores everywhere. You can also pre-order uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And, you know, you know, listen, this is a, the, the book itself is obviously a, a life's work. You know, it, it, it's chronicling your personal experience. Uh, I can only imagine how much effort and time it took to put it together. Um, but, you know, this is something clearly you're very proud of. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've been asked, like, why did I choose that story? It was as an infantry Marine, it probably was a pinnacle or if not the pinnacle of my career to um, 
you know, serve with those those Marines in combat and under, under some of the worst conditions. I think that's what we all train for. And it, it is a remarkable story of, of brotherhood and, and shared adversity, but also triumph and, and healing. And it's really accessible to, to every reader. It's um, something that most people need to read to understand what it's like for the Marines what it's like for the families, Marines, who gave so much to support us in our mission. I'm, I'm really, really proud to be able to tell their story. Well, Scott, listen, I mean, obviously the career speaks for itself, but what you're doing post-career and helping veterans and, and continuing to get the word out there and, you know, much like we discussed that, hey, for everybody out there who, who put on a uniform is now in, in, in the second part of their life, in the second part of their career, that there still is a lot left to live for. And, and obviously the quality of life that we have uh, for our veterans needs to improve overall. But, you know, it's people like you that are out there pounding pavement still in a different uniform in, in a different manner that are making a difference. And for that, you know, it's it's just uh, our gratitude is, is limitless. Uh, well, it's my pleasure, Mark. And and I love your program, too, and continue to share messages like this. I think it's it's vitally important that people understand these things. And, and thanks for having me on the program. Thanks for doing what you're doing as well and getting that message out there. I appreciate it. Scott Houston, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Hey, thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.